Although our inability to do what God requires is a great sin, I think we can say that, we don't get to come to God and say, well, I'm not able to live a sinless life, so you can't blame me for not doing so. We don't get to do that. The law of God remains the same nonetheless. But though that's the case, it is a greater sin, and there are I think it's helpful for us to recognize that inability is one sin, unwillingness is another. To get to a point where we say we are, we're struggling to do what God has called us to do, but we're trying, is one thing. But to this, set aside our responsibility with a sense of just being unwilling to do it is another thing entirely. For example, you might, you might lament that you have not won a soul to Christ. You lament that. I, 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 I've not won a soul to Christ, and I can see why we might lament over that. But why lament over that, and yet not lament over our unwillingness to actually tell souls about Christ? You see, we can't win souls for for Christ. We can't convert them. And yet we might lament, I haven't seen a soul converted. But we can tell them. We can go out and engage in our days and meet people and tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ, hand them gospel literature, be ready to pass on the message. And when we don't do that, that's lamentable. Far more so than whether or not we've seen souls won for Christ. Lamenting what God has placed in His power is a distraction from lamenting how we fall short of what He has placed in our power. And I say that carefully, of course, in a sense in which without Him we can do nothing. I, I get that too. But there's certainly various aspects where we look at Scripture and we are called to do this and other areas where clearly we can't. Salvation is of the Lord. We know that. It's not of man. So you get my point. We are told to be witnesses, and that is what I'm saying. Lamenting over what we can't do is really a fruitless endeavor in comparison to lamenting over what we're unwilling to do. We can lament in the lack of answers to prayer. We can lament that. But again, it would be far more appropriate to lament our lack of prayer. The fact that we don't pray as we ought. That's lamentable, not whether or not there are answers. And of course, I get it. There's a place for lamenting over answers to prayer, but not before we lament our lack of prayer. It is a sin to not pray, to avoid prayer. We're told in this text to ask. That's how it begins. Verse 1, ask ye of the Lord, reign in the time of the latter reign. And in 1 Samuel 12, 23, we are told there, Samuel talks about, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. It is a sin to not pray for what we are meant to pray for. That's what's lamentable. We come to the prayer meeting, what is lamentable is we don't ask. Way more so than what fruit have we seen? What evidence 
have we seen of God answering prayer? Now, I believe we have seen answers to prayer. I believe it very much so. And I, I'm not going to down through that, but we, I, I believe we're seeing answers to prayer. But, but, there's still a need to get to the business of asking because I think we could see more. So, reading this text, I want us to look at it just for a moment here. Ask ye of the Lord, rain in the time of the latter rain, so the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to everyone grass in the field. So, I'm taking the words tonight. Showers of rain. Showers of rain. What are the showers of rain? We are told here of the former and the latter rain. The latter, the former rain rather was the the rain in the fall seems backwards to the, our way of thinking, but the former rain was in the fall when things were sown at the seed time, and the latter was in the spring, a little before harvest, and that's what's referred to here. The latter rain, that rain that comes to, to make everything just fruitful and ready for harvesting. And so the people here are at that point when they are to be praying for it. Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain, that is, in the season. In the period when you know the latter rain is needed, ask for it. Now, it's a little like being told to pray for your daily bread. You can look at the past and you can say, well, I've never wanted for daily bread. So I I look at every day that has passed and I've not wanted for daily bread. So maybe I can conclude It is not necessary to ask for daily bread, and yet we know that that would be wrong. Similarly here, one could look back and look at various years in the past and see various occasions and say, well, well, God, God sends the latter rain. That's why we we look for it. That's why we sow at the time that we sow, because we're expecting rain at this time when we need it. But he says, ask. He looks for people to ask. And so, when they do so, we're told that they will be given showers of rain. What are these showers of rain? This is what we want to be seeing in our time. It's the latter rain that comes, the showers of rain that come to to give the grass in the field, to see the, the vibrancy, the fruitfulness that is longed for. And of course, it's spiritual. It is looking forward. It's looking forward to a season. I believe we understand the text that is looking forward to the time of the Messiah. Looking forward to a latter rain that comes in which the Messiah arrives and with his arrival and his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension, there is a period of blessing. There is latter rain. And it comes to greatest fulfillment with the outpouring of the Spirit of God. Many of these prophets, they speak of that latter season, that latter time. They refer to an occasion where it's not just the people that are going to be blessed, but Gentiles are going to be gathered in. This is a time of latter rain. It's a time of later favor, where God comes and gives of Himself in more power in a way that had never been seen before. Well, of course, we are in that season. We're in that period. And so, I want you to see it in that way. Ask you of the Lord, rain in the time of the latter rain. We're in the time when the latter rain is expected. We're in the time when the latter rain is to be looked for. 
We're in the time when we're expecting a harvest season because the Spirit of God has been given. Therefore, living in this time, if we were to live in another period, that we could say the Bible says this period will be a fruitless period. Now, I, I do think some Christians get themselves to a point where they imagine we are in a fruitless period. And they read certain scriptures in a way that make them believe we can expect nothing. But I don't see it. I don't see it. I see passages that warn of difficult days and perilous times and evil men waxing worse and worse. I see all those scriptures, but, but I don't see anywhere where it suggests that there's going to be a lack of blessing. Showers of rain. There's a text in Isaiah 32. It speaks there in verse 13 and following. Upon the land of my people shall come up thorns and briars, yea, upon all the houses of joy in the joyous city, and because the palaces shall be forsaken. The multitude of the city shall be left, the forts and towers shall be for dens forever, a joy of wild asses, a pasture of flocks, until... going to be a time, a season, where the curse marks the land until, until what? Until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness be a fruitful field, and the fruitful field be counted for a forest. Until. And that, of course, is what the Lord told His apostles. Tarry until ye be endued with power from on high. Look for this season of latter rain, of harvest and blessing. And beloved, we are obligated to look for these showers. Obligated, I tell you. Our, our, our tendency is to, to focus in narrowly. And there's a reason for that. We, we have to function narrowly. Responsibilities begin with self and then work out to family and to society, and so on. But we can't come here or live our lives content when we have what we might term showers of rain in our own little worlds. I have enough to provide for my family. I have a roof over my head. I have the means to provide for my children and whatever, and I'm content to be right there. This was the warning that Haggai gave to his, the people in his day. You're, you're, you've gone away from mission. And there you are in your sealed houses, and you've neglected the mission. Temple work. So tempting. Showers of rain are seasons of blessing in this epoch in which we live. It is the outpouring of the Spirit here and now. We are to look for it. We are to pray for it. We are to expect it. And it gets so easily away from us where we begin to just lose sight because if we can avoid tragedy and difficulty, if the church, let's say, can hold its own, 
You know, and I've mentioned this before, but repetition is, is needed sometimes. You know, we get to a point where, well, we're not the only ones sitting here. So, you know, we're not, we don't feel alone. And we have a preacher and we have office bearers and we, the bills are paid, the lights are on and all the rest of it. But showers, beloved, showers that bear real fruit. Where do they come from? Where do these showers come from? One might say they come from the clouds. You can see in the text. So the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain. So you have these lightnings. You may have that translated that way. It's time of, of, of storms. The storms that are needed. The, the rain that comes to saturate the ground and bring the harvest to its full head and ready for harvesting. It's very easy to begin thinking that the cause of blessing is its means rather than its source. The clouds bring the rain. But who sends the clouds? It is God. And it's an error to look at how we see the clo- what the clouds may represent. In fact, I was reading John Gill here. He typifies the clouds as being the ministers of the gospel. They go about their business. They, they, they minister the word. And you can see it. I mean, I, I saw where he was coming from in the sense that you have a means. The minister is a means. God appointed means. Every Christian, in one sense, can be a cloud moving around. The danger, especially when we're thinking of ministers, is that you start saying that the blessing is tied in to the man. Now, I have to be careful because there's no denying that some men walk before God in a way that they distribute more blessing than others. And our danger, however, is we look at such men and we say, there's, there's the source of blessing. It's that cloud. But it's not. It is the Lord. In fact, the Lord hates when we start looking at the clouds and thinking they are the Source of rain. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 8. Go there for just a moment. Because this is, this is warned. And it's a familiar passage. I know many of you know this portion. But John 8, or pardon me, Deuteronomy 8. Did I say John 8? Deuteronomy chapter 8. Pardon me if I got that incorrect. Deuteronomy chapter 8. I want to see how the Lord warns of this, this very thing, where you start to look at the clouds. You look at something that is a means. It's something God uses, but it's not, it's not where the blessing is really coming from. Deuteronomy 8, verse 11. Beware! So they're about to enter into the land, and they're full of anticipation, full of hope, full of expectation of blessing. 
There are warnings like this. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God, not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I command thee this day, lest when thou hast eaten and art full, and hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all that thou hast is multiplied, then thine heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee, and that he might prove thee to do thee good at the la- thy latter end. And thou say in thine heart, My power... And the might of my hand hath gotten me this wealth. You can see how that can happen. Because here's a people who are well organized, well drilled. They are taught to be industrious. In fact, I mean, you think of it. <laughs> you, know, you know how it is. You know how it is. Every generation arises and uh, talks to their children about what it was like in their day. Why, when I was a lad, you know, this kind of talk. And, you're, and you see it in some ways because you only have to drive past the schools today. And you see this fleet of vehicles. And those of us old enough can remember when the majority of people walked to school. Maybe not in America. I don't know if it's been different here because everything's organized so that you have to use vehicles here. But certainly in Europe... Most kids, my generation, I'm back, you walked to school. If it was a mile, a mile and a half, whatever it was, you went, you walked to school. And even there, you see the same. You see the, the traffic outside the schools. And you see a, a change. And of course, you could, the parents could say, oh, you're so spoilt, you know, you get driven to school. And I had to walk, rain, hail, sleet, snow, whatever it was, I had to walk. Or here it might be in the, the, the heat and the humidity, whatever. And you talk like that, how difficult it was. And you try to instill in them a sense of responsibility and discipline and what it's like to, to, to uh, be responsible and do chores and all the rest. Well, you could give a little leeway, I think, to the generation that came out of Egypt. You're saying to their kids, <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> what we were made to do, what we had to endure, what we experienced. And so they no doubt taught their children in such a way how, what it is to work hard, earn a living, understand the value of a dollar, as it were. And so they're well drilled. Like they do everything that is, is part of being prosperous not being slothful and so on. But they start thinking it's the cloud that brings the rain. My power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth, but thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant which he swear unto thy fathers as it is this day. So where does it come from? You see it in verse 10. Ask ye of the Lord... Go to the true source. Go to the one who brings blessing. Now remember that. 
Remember that. Remember that when things aren't going well in the family. Remember that. You wives, remember it. If your husband loses his job, and you start realizing, you say, well, it's, because you're, it's your fault because you did this and did that and did the other, or you didn't do. And you start entering into a debate because you're saying, the cloud is failing to give rain. And there may be discussion, and sometimes there's responsibility. Don't, I'm not denying that. But, but don't, don't debate and argue and do all of that and not fall on your knees and cry out to God. It's unbelief. It's a sure thing. If you do that, then you'll do it in the time of prosperity as well. You'll forget God. And the same, you see for you husbands, you, you men out working or whoever, and you look at, you see problems in your place of employment, you blame the manager, you blame, you blame all the, those who are in control. You, you can, and, and there can be blame. Men sin, yes, but don't just point the finger. Speak to God. It comes from God, all of it. He gives showers of rain. So we want revival. We are to go to Him. That's why we have a prayer meeting. Thirdly, how do we obtain it? How do we get these showers of rain? How do we get these clouds full, bursting, ready to pour out of their substance upon us and bless us with a fruitful season? How? Ask. Ask. Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. Ask. So here you are in the season of the Holy Spirit. You live in it. You live in it. You live in the same to use the word, I hope correctly, dispensation of the reformers. The blessing of the Spirit was not in some unique way confined to the 16th century or any other period of blessing, looking at the Great Awakening or whatever. It's not confined there. You're in it. You're to be expecting this We've sown the seed. Now we're coming to the time of the latter in this crucial latter in without which there's famine. It's needed. You're living in it. I'm living in it. And we are to do what? Ask. Ask. When God says ask, disobedience to it is sin. Asking, of course, is Christ-like. It is what the Messiah did and does. The Father said to the Son, Ask of me, Psalm 2, verse 8. Ask of me. You think, why would the Son have to ask? Why? Because he does play a role in showing us perfect humanity. Helping us understand what we are called to do. So you say, I want to be Christ-like. Well, I say to you, ask. I say to myself, ask. And of course, he came with the same 
command to us. Our Lord Jesus told us, ask and it shall be given you. You know the familiarity of those words? They kind of wash over us. I'm quoting them now and you, know, uh, you can finish it. And because you can finish it, you're not listening to it. <laughs> That's the danger. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. That statement in John sixteen twenty three: Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. I, I think we're scared of that. We're scared. Whatsoever. Now when he says whatsoever, it's not for us to come and pray general prayers. What does he say? Ask ye of the Lord reign in the time of the latter reign. That's very specific, isn't it? It's specific. This is what to ask for and when. I'm telling you, you're in the time of the latter reign. You're in the time of the Holy Spirit. Christ is at the Father's right hand, dispensing His Spirit upon lands and communities right now. It is happening right now. There are nations being impacted with the gospel in ways they have never been touched. No. This second is happening. As you sit here this Wednesday night, the Holy Spirit is being poured forth and hundreds and thousands are being converted. No. Right now. Don't think American-centric to, oh dear, because the Spirit's not working right here, therefore He's not working. Not true. He is working. The season is open. The season of latter rain, of blessing, is now. What are you to do? Ask. Ask. Keep asking. Remember Dr. Cairns, and I paraphrase here, said something about unbelief hiding in lack of specificity. That's very true. Unbelief hiding in lack of specificity. Bless me, Lord. Okay, in what way? In what way? In what way? You come here on Wednesday night and say, Bless us, Lord. In what way? How will you know he answered? You pray this prayer, and the rain comes in the time of the latter rain. You can see it, and you can say, Bless God, he heard and answered prayer. Specific requests resulting in specific answers Results also in specific thanksgiving. Because you go back like the leper and you say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for this. Showers of rain. Oh, faith. Faith. Free Presbyterian Church. You need it. We need it. Big time. Big time. Showers of rain. We could send out a thousand preachers in the next five years and we need more. I'm not even kidding. There is endless need out there. Showers of rain. May the Lord help us. I'm going to read here just before we come and sing and then pray. Uh, this is for the last time. This, again, this is McShane's response to the committee that's querying over what God had done in Dundee back in the 1800s. And 
Let's see now, where do we leave off? Question 12 and following. Um, I'll, read the, I'll read the questions here. One question was asked, was any death occasioned or said to be occasioned by overexcitement in any such case? If so, state the circumstances insofar as you know them. I'm not sure all that's behind that, but death in relation to all the excitement of the revival. Uh, verse or Question 13, state any other circumstances connected with revivals in your parish or district, which, though not involved in the foregoing queries, may tend to throw light upon the subject. So help us out here, basically. So he says very briefly to that one, 12, there was one death that took place in very solemn circumstances at the time of the work of God in this place, and this was ascribed by many of the enemies to religious excitement. The facts of the case, however, which were published at that time, clearly show that this was a groundless culminate. Calmly, I should say. So, I don't know what all is going on there. But then the, 13, the question 13, he says, I have been led to examine with particular care the accounts that have been left us of the Lord's marvelous works in the days that are past. So he's looking at revival and what God has done in the past, both in our own land and in other parts of the world, in order that I might compare these with what has lately taken place at Dundee and in other parts of Scotland. In doing this, I have been fully convinced that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at the Kirk of Shots, that's the church at Shots, a certain area, what happened in 1620, 1630, Kirk of Shots, I think it was 1630, and again a century after at the work in our own day. Indeed, so completely do they seem to agree, both in their nature and in the circumstances that attended them, that I have not heard a single objection brought against the work of God now, which was not urged against it in former times. And that has not been most scripturally and triumphantly removed by Mr. Robe in his narrative and by Edwards in his invaluable thoughts on the revival of religion in New England. What he's saying here is basically... The objections that are, we are facing here were faced in the past and have been dealt with by Edwards and someone, Mr. Robe. He goes on here responding to a question, what special circumstances in the preaching or ministrations of the instruments appear to have produced the results in each particular case which may have come under your notice? He says, I do not know of anything in the ministrations of those who have occupied my pulpit, that may with propriety be called peculiar, or that is different from what I conceive ought to characterize the services of all true ministers of Christ. Were they doing something strange? Has this all happened because they were drummed up in some way? They have preached, so far as I can judge, nothing but the pure gospel of the grace of God. They have done this fully, clearly, solemnly, with discrimination, urgency, and affection. None of them read their sermons. They all, I think, seek the immediate conversion of the people. And they believe that under a living gospel ministry, success is more or less the rule, and want of success the exception. They are, I believe, in general, peculiarly given to secret prayer. And they have also been accustomed to have much united prayer when together, and especially before and after engaging in public worship. Some of them have been peculiarly aided in declaring the terrors of the Lord, 
and others in setting forth the fullness and freeness of Christ as the Savior of sinners. And the same persons have been at different times remarkably assisted in both these ways. So far as I am aware, no unscriptural doctrines have been taught, nor has there been a keeping back of any part of the whole counsel of God. And finally, and this brings us to a close, uh, did the person or persons whom you described as the instruments in producing the effects above adverted to address children at what hour, in what special terms, and what might be the age of the youngest of them? The ministers engaged in the work of God in this place, believing that children are lost, may through grace be saved. And just keep underlining, these are, these are Presbyterians who baptize their kids. Just classic Presbyterian, always preach that the kids need to be converted. Any idea that they don't is a twist of liberalism and its influence, but historically it has never been the case. We always look for them to be converted. Have therefore spoken to children as freely as to grown persons, and God has so greatly honored their labors that many children from ten years old and upwards have given full evidence of their being born again. I'm not aware of any meetings that have been held peculiarly for children, with the exception of the Sabbath schools, the children's prayer meetings, and a sermon to children on the Monday evening after the communion. It was commonly at the public meetings in the house of God that children were impressed, often also in their own little meetings when no minister was present. So, here endeth Mr. McShane's account of the revival in Dundee. May the Lord help us to have a taste of what God can do. Let's sing before we pray.